Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today on the podcast is Hugh King, who's one of the, is it epiphanous? I don't know what the right word. Residents of East Hampton, well known by all, largely for the role he's played in being the town crier for a bunch of years. But I'll have him tell you about it. But first, let's talk about how far back your family goes in Springs in East Hampton. Well, if you look at Mrs. Rattray's book, Mrs. Rattray wrote East Hampton History and Genealogies. Yes. And then she, she has a, um, a record of all the old families. And there were kings coming here from England, you know, into East Hampton uh, in the 1600s. And my father was born out here in East Hampton. But, you know, Dan, when these people tell you that they're, they're like 13th or 14th generation, which means they're better than you. When, the, when Loretta, when my wife was doing her book about the witchcraft crisis, she went back and looked at the records and some of our old families got in trouble with the law. You see, oh, so you have to be careful saying that you're a 13th or 14th generation because some of your ancestors may have been crooks or bums. That's probably very true. Yeah. You started your career as a school teacher or did you have other things in mind? No, I was fortunate to spend my entire working, well, part of my working life as a teacher. I started in Riverhead in 1963. And thanks to Fred Yardley, there was a job in Springs and I got a job teaching in Springs, which was of course, as you know, because your children went there. It was a great place to go to school and to teach school. You, you taught school there for how many years? 31 years. That's, uh, there you, you undoubtedly taught the children of people who you also taught. Uh, some of my students are collecting Social Security. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> what is, uh, you don't have a Boniker accent. So I wanted to ask you about that. When did yeah. you? Well, no, I don't, I guess. Um, but there's not many, many left now who, who have that, that twang that um, uh, the, the old Bonnikers had. Um, there are a few people who still have it. I, I don't know why I don't have it. Uh, my father had it a little bit, but my grandfather from out here had it. Why, mean, how did it come about? Why were, did people talk like that? I don't know. Supposedly, it, 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 it goes back to England in the area now around Dorset, where this, this accent came from. Like, you don't say the ends of words. I guess it was this. Um, I'm trying to think of some words, you know, like um, oil or oil. Think of a sentence upstream. Oh. Well, ain't no better than we are. You know, they ain't no better than we are. That's what those old Bonnikers used to say about the summer people, you know. Ain't no better than we are. And uh, they used yes twice. Yes, yes, Bob. Yes, yes. So no, no. 
And you know what they used to do? They would do the opposite. For example, boy, that's a that's a small mess of clams you got there, which meant you had a large mess of clams, <laughs> you see. Uh, and of course, you know, we always used to talk about upstream. You went upstream. You went up the island. And Not most most of the Kabanikas never went to New York. I, I got out here about the 50s and 60s or people who had never been to New York City. No, Riverhead was the big place to go. If you went to Riverhead, you had to cross the Shinnecock Canal, right? Probably needed a passport. Everything's up to date in Riverhead. You could go get your license. My father went and got his license at Riverhead. Just went and got it. I don't know. You didn't have to take the test. I see. And um, what did you teach a grade or did you teach a specific subject? Or... No, I taught third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. And now the, near the end of my career, the last maybe, I don't know, five or six years, I taught in the uh, academic enrichment program uh, at Spring School. Um, but I was able to retire in 1996. And uh, have you enjoyed that? Oh, look what happened to me after I retired. I got a job at Home Sweet Home Museum. Yeah. How many people in this country work at a place called Home Sweet Home Museum? Nobody. Home Sweet Home was the song written by who? John Howard Payne wrote the song, but unfortunately, or fortunately, the, the legend grew up that he was born in this house, and he wasn't. I think that was something for publicity's sake. Well, yeah, people in East Stanton didn't mind having a place called Home Sweet Home where John Howard Payne was born, but so, but unfortunately, or fortunately, in 2014, Bob Hefner and I did a historic structure report where we documented everybody who uh, have lived in that property. And, you know, and Payne's father didn't live there. His grandfather didn't live there. He didn't live there. But we still have a, we have a statue. You know, we have his head in the museum. <laughs> you know, there was a bus put up in Prospect Park of Payne, a whole statue. And in 1973, four guys tried to steal it, and they oh. got caught. And then the, the, the bus was in such terrible shape that the, high, that the Parks Department put it on Randall's Island. And it was there with all the broken down statues. And there was an article in the Times about it. And uh, Avril Geis, my predecessor, found the article. And to make a long story short, we borrowed the head. So we've got his head in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> What were your uh, how, what were the things you've done as town crier? Uh, you haven't been lighting any lamps because they're electrified, but they look like gas lamps. Well, the, the original town crier was uh, idea came from Fred Yardley and Tony Bullock. They thought, why don't you go around to different organizations and schools and talk about local history? Or why don't you come to a town board meeting and talk about local history? So they appointed me the official town crier. And then I would go to the Lions Club right before their meeting and give a little talk, or I'd go to the Kiwanis Club, or I'd go into a fourth grade class. Um, I'd come to the town board meetings, and they let me speak first. So and you were all dressed up. Yeah, I used to yeah, I'd dress up in the, uh, the cape. My, my, my wife, Loretta, made me this cape, and then I have the top hat. Now I saw I've seen you on the street uh, with people. 
Yeah, Tell well, the historical society uh, sponsors walks, uh, historical walks. We, we used to do lantern tours, Richard Barron's and myself, and we would go up and down Main Street and um, talk about the historic buildings and the people who lived there. And then we also do cemetery tours, but we don't do them at night. See, everybody wants to go into the cemetery at night. No, it's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. But that South End Cemetery, the one by Town Pond, is a rich cache of history. You know, you could spend hours in there. Um, well, rather than um, ask you about all the history of the Hamptons and the East Hampton, Tell us some of your favorite um, things that happened historically. You know uh, where the East Hampton Star Office is, but right next to it is Clinton Academy. Yep. Now, that building began to be used as a school and opened in 1785. And it allowed girls to attend. Highly, highly unusual for, uh, for that time. And it was a private school, so you had to pay. And it wasn't for just students from East Hampton, they came as far away as Connecticut, Rhode Island, and even the West Indies to go to school in that building. Why? It lasted about a hundred years. Sort of a finishing school there for girls? Well, it was more than that. It was, uh, it was an educational uh, school where they taught geography, French, navigation, the classics. And when, when the state told you you had to have public high schools, then it kind of died out. And the kids stayed in houses up and down Main Street, uh, the ones who bo- uh, who came. And if you lived in East Hampton and your parents had enough money, you would go there. But Joseph Osborne couldn't go until his two sisters got out because it would have been too much. So he had to wait. So I think that's a neat story. Well, one of the one of the my favorite stories is Julia Gardner. Oh yes, who married the president of the United States? When that's she- right. Three years old. He was 30 years older than she was. She was uh, a New York, actually the family, he was a lawyer and uh, he had a summer, well, he had Gardner's. He, was, he wasn't the owner of Gardner's Island. He was one of the brothers and he had a house in East Hampton and on the island. Right. He would summer and she was put in there, I think for finishing school after she did this advertisement that she did for a department store. Yes. And um, that was and scandalous. She, that was scandalous. Was and because yeah. uh, that was part of society. And then um, then she met him in the White House and he fell for her. He was uh, a widower. Um, uh, President Tyler, 1840, 1841. That's right. He's the first. I'm only telling you this. No, this is great. No, no, that's great. You know, her father was killed, you know, aboard this boat, this yes, ship. I know. Right? That. And the president was on the ship at the same time. And he could have been um, blown up by this gun, blew up, and they killed her father, the Secretary of Navy, Secretary of State. Julia's mother didn't want her to marry him because he didn't have enough money <laughs> to <laughs> maintain her. He was also 30 years older than she was. And you know, I think one of his grandchildren is still alive. They have a a, a plantation, Sherwood Forest, it's called, in Virginia. That was their home. Yes, right. Right? Yep. That's a great story. 
Yes, and what tell us a little bit about um, Goody Garlic. That's oh, well, um, my wife Loretta wrote the book, uh, It Was Well to Please the Devil is Angerum, Witchcraft in the Founding Days of East Hampton. You buy the book at the library and all the money goes to the library from the book. But what she found out was that um, uh, uh, John, uh, Lion Gardner's daughter dies in 1657, claiming she was bewitched by a woman named Elizabeth Garlic. Goody is not a name. It's a title. Uh, common people like Dan and I would be Goodman, and then our wives would be Goodwife. Uh, Lion Gardner was Mr., and so was the minister. So Goody Garlic is just like Goodwife Garlic. And she, she accused Elizabeth Garlic of being a witch. And then all these other women came up with stories about Goody Garlic, like she picked up my baby and, and then four days later, the baby died, see? Or Goody Garlic went by and an ox broke its leg. Or um, I, um, a black cat came by right after Goody Garlic came by. All these stories are in the town records. And then the town, uh, the leader said, uh-uh, we're not, we're not going to deal with this. So <laughs> they, they threw it off to Connecticut. And that's yeah, where the trial took place. Hamptons were part of Connecticut then. Right. We were under their, uh, under their jurisdiction. And John Winter Jr. was the judge. Well, sure. he wasn't interested in witchcraft. He didn't want anything to do with it because it broke up communities. And he yeah. wanted to keep these communities together because they were afraid of the Dutch coming out. See? So she uh, went to Connecticut, had a trial. She was deemed not guilty and sent back to East Hampton. Yeah. And this That's is before Salem. This is 1657, yeah. 35 years before Salem. What, what are you, are you still the crown, town crier? I haven't seen you around for a year or two. Anyway. No, I, I am the town crier. I mostly go to town board meetings um, and talk. I'm also the town historian. I'm also the village historian. <laughs> Three high-paying jobs. Yes, zero. <laughs> Are you, were you involved at all in uh, the Coast Guard station in Amagansett where uh, the Nazis landed? Yes, I was. I was on the original committee, and I prepared a... We had a short play that we used to do on the beach about, yep. the, uh, about the Nazis landing. I got... Um, I got three people to be the saboteurs, and I got one of my former students, Sonny Cerisi. He was John Cullen, and Carl Irace, a lawyer, was uh, Carl Jeanette. So we we started off on the on the beach, and then we came up to the life saving station, and to finish the play. So yeah, I think people need to know the whole backstory of that. Most don't. These. Uh, these saboteurs came by submarine, not a German submarine, during World War II. And they uh, were put ashore in a rubber boat and they had explosives with them and they were meant here to do harm. That's pretty much it. And they were encountered by a Coast Guardsman who was walking the beach at the time. So that's pretty much that story. Yeah, but here's the classic. When he ran back to the uh, Coast Guard station, at first they didn't believe him. <laughs> yes. And then they all went down there and the four saboteurs went up to the train station and hid there all night. And nobody thought to go to the train station to look for them. In the end, what happened to them? Well, they turned themselves in and then they weren't believed then either. 
but eventually they turned themselves in and there were four guys in florida too and they all they got caught and six of them were executed and two of them were sent back to germany by harry truman yeah so that that coast guard station you know is all has all been restored and it's a place you can go visit i know i uh, i i've been down there and i remember it when it was bought and moved. It, that building was moved away by the Carmichaels who lived nearby. He, he lived his life in that house. You got, I guess you got it for a dollar or something, hold it away. It was before history mattered. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, the coast, then the town bought it back and brought it and put it back where it was originally. Yep. It's a great story. Yeah, there's so many great stories. I want to ask you about this. Can I, may I ask you a question? Sure. I think you wrote a play once where this is when the nuclear scare, well, we have it again today. There was a play that you wrote where the the Russians and the Americans were talking to each other and they decided the two, the people in the trenches to have a fake um, alert. And then the leaders would go into a basement where the protect to, to protect them. And then they would lock the doors and they wouldn't let them out. And well, that's how they stopped this nuclear threat. It was called Peterson's War. And it was performed at Five Towns College and also at Vale Levitt Theater in Riverhead. But you've got it a little wrong. They didn't lock anybody up. Okay. These guys were the people who were supposed to press the button launching the nuclear wep- weapon and the bombs. And they simply refused to do it, both the Russians and the Americans. And so the, uh, the, at the end, uh, the, all the leaders were down in the bomb shelters waiting to hear the good news about the other side. And these guys all went out and met each other and had a good time. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. I was right, though. That, that was a play like that. Yeah, it was. I, I did that. That was, I wrote that during the time that, uh, the uh, Russians and the Americans were getting very cozy in the late 80s with Gorbachev. Oh, okay. Um, I think Billy Joel wrote a song about uh, where the Russians, uh, Leningrad, and they're just like us and you know stuff like that. Oh, so wow. And South after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> what else are you doing these days that's uh, of interest to the surrounding community, besides observing all your students. Yeah, well, I, you, I, I mistakenly got on Facebook um, because I wanted to connect with a, a couple of students. But that's the one thing. That's why you're going to give me the email of some of your children. All right, give them my email. All right, after we get done with all this, so okay. they can email me. Okay, uh, that's okay. one of the things I'm starting to enjoy is. Um, connecting with some former students, like one of them is going to be defending her dissertation. Um, another one is working in the healthcare. I want to know what happened to them after high school. You know, I was wondering how they got to where they are. That's something that's interesting. I'm also taking care of my wife, Loretta, uh, because she's not well. And then I still work at Home Sweet Home Museum. What are you doing now? Pardon? Are you just a docent who shows up and t- takes people? Yeah, I, myself and two other people are um, people come for the tour and we take them on a tour of the place. 
And um, I'm also in charge of the three windmills. We're going to open up the Hook Windmill in July and August. Uh, but I don't think we're going to be able to turn it. It's too fragile. You know, that windmill turns. Have you ever seen it turning? Yes, I have, but it has a fourth blade that's missing. I know. We're trying to get it repaired. <laughs> we're trying to get it repaired. Last thing I want to ask you about, you probably would know more about this than I, I certainly do, and that is the problems with uh, cleaning out Town Pond and having it still starting to leak. Well, they, they, there's, there's a pump there that they're working on fixing. The, the pump that pumps the water broke down and got clogged. So what they're doing now is they were down there the other day repairing it. So I don't know where they are in that process, but that's been the problem. The other problem was there, if you look at the edge, it's made of wood, but underneath it, there was plastic and plastic doesn't expand. Right. So they got a leak in it. So it was leaking. So are they going to take it out and put in wood? No, I think they're going to get the pump fixed. Yes, they're going to. I don't know if they're going to do that. I know they they're probably trying to plug up the leak, but it's the pump that's been because when the rains when it didn't rain, the water would go down and the pump wasn't working. Yeah, and uh, then there was no water in the pond for quite a while. Aaron. I know, but it, it looked so nice after they had cleaned it out, though. Yeah, um, so no, they're no, in the no, process no. of trying to fix it. But, you know, we've got supply train problems, right? You need it's having trouble people bidding on things. You know, the, the, the village just can't hire anybody. You have to put it out to bid and yeah. you have to go through this process, you know. Well, the history of the Hamptons is remarkable. And uh, I want to thank you for telling me some pieces of it that I did not know and some that we shared. Yes. And Dan, I want to thank you um, for writing so many articles about the history out here. And even though some of them aren't true, you have the amazing ability to make the article appear like it's the real thing. And I, <laughs> And I always tell people that that's a that's a great art that you have perfected. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm talking to Hugh King, who's All right, Dan. out here, and um, I will see you soon, perhaps, and I'll stop by Home Sweet Home. Thanks for being on the All show. All right, bye bye, bye bye.